before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. everybody to another edition of the end game joining me as always is the man himself bill feckenstein hi mate hello mate how are you it's been a little while since we've uh, teed one of these up and the reason for that is obvious it's been uh, the indian wells tennis tournament and we all know what happens then <laughs> yeah they schedule it for a different time of year so i have to go um underground for those few weeks yeah what a perfect time to be in the desert though it was nice october, it, was, I mean. it was it was hotter in october than i, I would have imagined um the weekend before the tournament started, I got down there on Sunday night at five o'clock. It was 101. I wasn't quite ready for that. Oh, wow. but anyway, it was nice to be down there. It's nice to be back and it's nice to be back uh, getting to talk to um, a smart guy like Jim on topics right now that are very current and that he's an expert on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and obviously, for those who haven't seen it, you have come back from the desert a meme. <laughs> yes. Do I have to explain that? Yes. Oh, oh, yes, you yeah. do. Okay. So I was. Uh, I was. I have in the stadium too there, which is the best stadium to watch the matches. I, I happen to have some front row seats, sort of behind where the server is, but not too far from the baseline. And uh, Dennis Shapovalov shanked the ball from the other end of the court. It must have gone fifty feet in the air. And I'm sitting there looking at the thing, and I think, you know, this is coming my way. And I didn't move a muscle. The ball came to me. I grabbed it, and you know, crowd kind of you know made some noise. And I didn't think too much of it. And then the next day, I got an email from two friends in Serbia. They're tennis players that play on the, or on the circuit, actually, um, and saying, hey. And they sent me a clip. And so on the um, <clears throat> on the ATP website, they made a meme out of me doing that, which my, my tech-savvy younger daughter says, that's way cooler than even doing what you did. It's that they made a meme out of you. So I've been memed. You got that to... You know, you got you got to get up to speed and get yourself memes somewhere, Grant. Listen, it's not it's not an easy thing to do, but uh, it, we need to. You you will find that in Bill's Twitter feed, and I suggest you go and look at it because uh, it's it's awesome. It's awesome. Anyway, listen, you okay. refer to Jim, and Jim is of course our guest today, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research, a friend of both of ours, and uh, just a fantastic intellect. And he's been very vociferous on a lot of issues that Bill and I have been kicking backs and forwards through this. Serious. So we figured what better thing to do than to get Jim to come on in his own words and kick this idea around with us. So uh, what do you say we welcome Jim? Let's do it. There he is. is. Yeah. So uh, guys, thanks for having me. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. So Jim, one of the things I I was really curious to get your opinion and be able to flesh out is uh, sort of a combination of things that kind of get us to a central theme that we've focused on. And uh, the theme has been what ends this great, this experiment in, in central banking monetization. I think we all know that it's going to end. And what might cause that, and even though that may be ways down the road, one of the things that we've talked to other people about is, you know, would it be the bond market? Would it be the currency market? What would be the signs? And I noticed that recently you've been writing more about um, sort of the discrepancy between what the bond market seems to think is going to happen on the rate hike front and what the Fed chit-chat and dot plots seem to think. 
so maybe what you could do is start off by diving into that and say, okay, look, here, here's what the market seems to be saying. Here's what the Fed's doing. This is what things that's led to in the past. And then we could maybe touch a little bit on the reliability of the tips and break-evens forecasts and all that. And I think that area of that topic would be useful to a lot of people about now because I think people are way more focused on this now than they were maybe even three or four months ago. So with that long-winded question, take it away, Jim. Uh, let me start with the end game. Let me start with your big picture question you asked at the top. Uh, what, what ends this? The thing we haven't had in 30 or 40 years that has allowed this whole game to go, persistent inflation, to use the 2021 term. If we get inflation in some kind of a persistent fashion, it forces the Fed out. It forces them to respond to inflation and tighten in the wake of inflation, something they haven't done maybe in any way, in an earnest way since the 90s or maybe even the 80s. And then if the stock market starts weakening, they've got a dilemma on their hands. Well, all right, so we throw money to kind of support the stock market, then the bond market goes over this side. Or if we support the bond market, then the stock market goes over the side. They haven't had to make that decision because low inflation and then the excuse of transitory as it started up in the last year has allowed them to just basically play it both ways, throw money and it'll conter- and it'll have the stock market and the bond market go up. Now that I've said that, you're right about the metrics. If you look at the market and let's take the Fed Fund Futures market there, it's been trading since 1989 at the Chicago Board of Trade, which is now the CME. And you can devise from that what are the probabilities that the Fed is going to move rates at certain meetings? And to make it very easy for anybody listening, if you just Google CME Fed Watch, they have a handy little tool that will tell you what the probabilities are that they're going to raise rates at some meeting all the way out to 2023. You go through all that data, and what it'll tell you is the market is pretty much on the idea that the Fed's going to raise rates in June or maybe July in September or maybe November, and then in December or maybe February. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is it's on the precipice of saying, once the Fed starts the taper next week, November 3rd, they're going to have a meeting. They've pretty much Mm pre-announced they're going to taper. They buy $120 billion worth of bonds a month. They're going to reduce that by $15 billion a month. So that work the math out. That means in June, they're done with buying bonds. And the market's saying, and then you will immediately raise rates in June, September, December, or some variation of that moving forward. We will immediately start a rate hike campaign. Now, most economists in the Fed, they're not there. They're at one rate hike maybe next year, maybe a second one, uh, possibly, but no way are they thinking about three. And none of them are really thinking that the day that the Fed ends the taper, they're going to immediately start raising rates. So the market is signaling to the Fed their opinion. And I believe what their opinion is, is you have to do something about inflation. And oh, by the way, I think you're already going to be too late anyway. So really what you're going to do is you're going to let inflation run, hurt the economy. Then you'll come in and right cross the economy with some higher rates that won't help lower inflation. So you're basically on the road to a policy mistake is what I think that the market is beginning to tell it. Last thing on this, whenever I bring up the Fed Fund Futures, two things, how accurate is it? It's accurate to the extent that 
It measures the market's opinion. You can look at overnight index swaps. You can look at the euro dollar futures curve. You can look at the repo market. And if you go through all that heavy math, what you'll come with is the same answer you get with the Fed fund futures because they're all easily arbitrageable. So if you look at one, you're getting the same answer with all of them within a rounding error of each other. Then the next question people say, well, how accurate has it been historically over time? And those run charts, in fact, I tweeted one out yesterday that shows here's what the funds rate was and here's what the market kept predicting. And people said, no, the market was completely wrong. It kept saying raise rates from 2010 to 2016 and it never happened. Well, is the market wrong or was the Fed wrong? Was the market sending the, mar- the Fed a signal, you should be raising rates in 11, 12, starting the normalization process, not waiting till 2015. And the Fed didn't listen to them for four years. So who was at mistake here? Was it that they should have been listening to the market or the market was errant in the way? So you could get into that existential debate with it right now. But the bottom line, the market is getting much more aggressive in what it thinks the Fed should do next, raising rates, raising rates aggressively than economists or the Fed's forecasts are. And I think it all comes back to this idea about inflation and that it is something real and something tangible. Just for a bit of context for the listeners, how has that market signal evolved over the last, like as this transitory narrative has come through, how has the market pricing evolved over the last, say, three months? Oh, it's moved very aggressively um, towards right. a, okay. you know, if you go back to late September, the market pricing was largely in line with what the chairman was saying, Jay Paul was saying, what economists were saying, maybe one rate hike in the next year or so, um, you know, maybe possibly one and a half. But it's moved in the last four or five weeks to three. And I don't think it's done moving. And you've seen long rates go from 130 on September 22nd. The 10-year note was at 1.3%. It hit 1.7% last week. Tips break evens, which is the, um, uh, the the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities or real rate bonds. If you subtract nominal rates from them, it gives you the market's expectation of inflation. In the at the five-year maturity, it's moved out to a new record high, three uh, percent inflation. It's thinking for the next five years, and again, it ain't done. It ain't peaked yet uh, at this point. So this is all new within the last four or five weeks. And you know what it coincides with is I think it coincides with the supply chain uh, problems. And I think what the market is is I, I tweeted about this about a week and a half ago. Uh, let me give you a quick take on the supply chain problem. The problem is we want too much stuff. The problem is we are demanding a record amount of stuff. There isn't a problem with the supply chain. It's just running at capacity. And we want it to run beyond capacity. And that's not easy. So what's the fix for the supply chain? It isn't 24-7 or it isn't the National Guard coming in and driving trucks. It's you raise prices so high, we stop wanting to buy stuff and bring everything back in line. And I think that that's what the market is, if I was to interpret it, it's saying that's what's coming. We'll fix the supply chain thing before Christmas. It's easy. Why do you see the prices you're going to have to pay for stuff in about a month or two, and then you'll just stop buying it, and then there won't be any supply chain problem anymore? It occurs to me that I think psychology has shifted over the course of since once the COVID started, when people found out oh, gee, we might not be able to get something. And if you marry that with, and it might go up in price, 
you start to get a little of the buy in advance mentality that was very prevalent in the 70s and even through the early part of the 80s. Uh, you know, people didn't quite believe that inflation had been broken. So it seems to me that supply chain problem can get worse. It's like in semiconductors. We see double and triple ordering all the time. It usually gets worse before it gets better. And I'm not saying we're not there now, but if you combine that thought with the fact that perhaps we drove just-in-time manufacturing as a concept and a way to run the world well past where it could actually function, which I think is kind of what you're saying, and you marry that we're going to go through a period of potentially higher demand, maybe despite higher prices or until we get really high prices, it seems to me that the potential for this kind of disruption to last a little bit longer than people think that it might is quite high. I agree. And I think that there's a struggle right now with what, you know, people are trying to figure out. First of all, about your idea about expectations, I do think that they definitely changed. And I do think that there is some idea that people are talking about just in time is now going to go to just in case. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is. Because what you're saying to companies is your margins are going to have to squeeze down because you're going to have to buy a bunch of stuff and put it in the corner and not use it just in case. That is going to really hurt earnings as we move forward, especially for goods producers. Uh, And so it's a big, big deal if we are changing that mentality. The other problem I think we face when it comes to the supply chain is if the supply chain is running at capacity, I don't know how we, we get it. I know people say, well, it'll get, it'll get better. By adding capacity, who's going to do that? Who's going to, what trucker, what railroad is going to say, we're going to add capacity. So we're going to have this capital expenditure to add capacity. And then in two months, all that extra demand goes away. And that, that's right. kind of the, the catch-22 yes. that we're yes. caught in. And that's- so all of this is changing a lot of people's mentalities. I agree with you at, at that point. And that's going to be really hard. Like I said, the only thing I think that breaks that is high prices. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, it's just too expensive. I just, I, I just can't buy it anymore. And then we bring everything back in the balance. That obviously makes sense. My only question was, and you answered it, was, might this take longer than it seems like even the most pessimistic person might be thinking? And, and I think there's a high probability that would be the case. Well, it depends, um, on, it depends on what you think it, it, it take longer. If you're on the optimistic- For the high prices to not demand in that down enough to allow the supply chain to sort itself out. You know, I, it, that- it, it, I think it, it might actually take a little bit faster. And let me give you one, okay. let me give you one antidote. Okay. In March- Procter and Gamble at their earnings call said we're going to raise prices. Right. They right. announced they're going to raise prices. This was March. They announced they were going to raise prices in September, Correct. and they were going to put out a white paper explaining why, which they did over the summer. Wait a minute, you just raise prices. You don't have to, you know, give me four month lead time and then have right. some economists write a paper. When you got to their September call. Their attitude had been, oh, we just raised prices last month. You know, there was no explanation. There was no forward thinking. It was just, we just raised them. And so that mentality is changing quickly. Think about- No, 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 no. What I meant is the prices have to get high enough to stop the demand. And what I was suggesting is it might take longer for that part to occur 
than people thought. Not not the part about where prices were going up, how high they might have to get to to be able to curtail the demand given the dynamics that work. That, that's, that's what I mean. Yes, and I think the reason that that is, is that, and it, you see this a lot in the labor market too, there is a perception that once you've raised prices, you can never lower them. Just like once you've raised wages, you could never lower them. And one of the reasons why I think we're having such a shortage problem with workers is we need to pay them more. And a lot of companies are worried, well, if I if I make the nah. leap and I start, you know, and I'll give you one example. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon's out to $23 an hour starting starting pay. They're looking for basically sorters in their in their fulfillment centers. And that works out to $47,000 a year. Is just walk in, walk in. You could start this afternoon, forty-seven grand, as long as you can pick up fifty pounds to your waist. That's about the only uh, criteria that they have, uh, and a lot of people are afraid to do that because what happens if there's a glut of workers? I can't lower their pay. What mm-hmm. happens if we get a yep. lot of a glut of stuff? I can't lower prices, so they're very reluctant to raise prices. There's no reason they can't lower them, but that mentality will come. And once that mentality comes, if prices can go north and south, then I think they can raise them a lot faster because they could say, well, you know, we'll raise them up. We'll, we'll, we'll get everything back into balance. And then if we need to, we can lower them later. But they're not ready to think that way just yet. Okay. Jim, let me ask you, uh, in your kind of overall thematic take on this at the very beginning, you talked about the Fed being forced out, which is kind of the end game that Fleck and I have kind of figure would ultimately be here at some point. Maybe the bond market forces them out, but someone forces them out. If we assume that they're backed into that corner and we get to the day where they are forced out, i.e. they have to do something because inflation, and I totally agree that that's been the missing ingredient to this thing the whole time, they're going to fight tooth and nail to not be forced out. And we've had uh, Russell Napier come on and talk about yield curve control and all the things that had to go along with that back in the 1940s. Um, you know, it's talked about in Stephanie Kelton's book about, well, they did it in the 40s. It worked. Great. We can do it again. Russell Handley points out that they had price controls, capital controls, credit controls, all other kinds of things. So let's suppose that they are being forced out. What do you think they will do to avoid having to raise rates to where they need to be? Because that really ends this whole charade if rates go to to the right level. Right. I agree with you that they will try and fight it. Uh, you know, first of all, they'll try and fight it verbally. Oh, it, it doesn't exist. It's all transitory. They might then try to fight it with a little bit more of an aggressive policy like yield curve control. Quick word about yield curve control. And I, I agree with what, what you said about with Russell. Yield curve control, I don't think works. We've got a couple of company countries that are doing it. Australia is doing it. Japan is doing it. Look at Australia. They target their three-year yield because that's where mortgages are written in Australia and stuff. And they have an April 2020, uh, April 2024 bond, and they target 10 basis points on it. And it trades at around 11 or 12 basis points. It's just one or two basis points above their target. No problem. They have a November 2024 bond that trades at 80 basis points. You know, So yeah. basically, you're going to target the April 24 bond? Fine. We'll put that at 10 and everything else around it will just trade it at whatever we think is the right level. I don't know if the Fed's ready to target every single maturity in the, in the treasury market because that might be what it takes. And even at that point, you might wind up having a problem where private investors are going to want, are not going to want anything to do with the bond market. Yeah. You know, you've, we've always- yeah. You've probably talked about this. We've talked about this. Who who wants to buy a 160 10-year note when the inflation rate is 3%? 
Um, well, first of all, I th- a benchmark hugger, maybe, but other than that, or a risk parity guy who seems to thinks they have no choice. Right. Or, or the other player might be somebody who thinks that the inflation rate is going to go back down under 2%, you know, within yeah. a year, but yeah, but uh, even still under 2%, why do you want to buy a 10 year 170? I mean, right. Who gives a shit? But let's remember now who buys a trillion and a half dollars a year of it. And that's the Fed. They buy 120 billion a month. Right. Uh, you know, the, the the Bank of Japan does. By the way, yield curve control is another way of saying I set the price. The quantity is right. unlimited. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. Japan is unlimited. Australia is unlimited. The ECB's got their pandemic emergency purchase plan, the PEP program. There's trillions and trillions of dollars being printed by central right. banks to buy this stuff. You take them out. And you're then you're left with who wants to own a negative yield, real yielding bond? Nobody. And then the prices will have to adjust real fast. So they'll fight this. They'll fight this all they can. But ultimately, the question then becomes, can can they fight the entire market if they chase everybody out? Because nobody wants to touch any of these negative real yielding bonds. The answer is, I don't think they can. And then eventually rates will go up and force their hand. Uh, but they'll fight rates going up and forcing their hand through yield curve control, through maybe bringing back uh, quantitative easing or whatever. Or, or as Russell said, they'll go in the next step. They'll do capital controls. They'll change the rules. They'll loosen up the rules to let the banks buy more bonds. They'll do whatever they can to squash down prices where necessary or encourage buying by making regulatory uh, relief for banks or anybody else to buy it as well, too. But at the end of the day, I don't think any of this will work if you're trying to get everybody to buy something that's uneconomic. It might work for a while, uh, but it won't work forever. Well, uh, it seems like to, 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 to sort of cap this piece of the discussion, we, we, we might have to uh, think about the makeup of the Fed. And it looks like that could change. I mean, it's going to change some for sure. And you've done a lot of work on the betting stuff and Powell. Obviously, the more MMT oriented the Fed members are, the more they're liable to try some of the things we discussed and whether they backfire or not it's a subject for down the road. How do you see this turmoil out the Fed playing out, Jim? They've got a real problem on their hands. They've got a real credibility problem with everybody right now. Boston and Dallas have already lost their presidents and they're in, in conduct with a search on that. Um, within that, uh, Randy Quarles, who was the vice chairman of supervision, that ended October 13th. There is currently no vice chairman for supervision. Quarles is now just a regular Fed governor. He's believed that he'll probably leave next year. Rich Clarida, the vice chairman, former PIMCO guy who was also implicated in, in trading, um, you know, spying stocks uh, the day before a meeting where the Fed was going to support the stock market. He's probably not going to get reappointed in January when his term as a Fed governor is up. There's four of the 12 voters right there. Then you throw in the idea that Paul might be reappointed or might not be reappointed. Uh, and you could have a very, very different Fed in six months than you have right now. Quick word about Powell. My take is a little different. We're almost in November. And there's been no word from the Biden administration whether or not they're going to reappoint Powell, who they're going to appoint as vice chairman, whether they're going to fill. There is still another uh, Fed governor seat open. Right. It has Empty. been for years. Yeah. Right. Uh, they, they don't you know who's going to be the head of supervision. There's been no word from them on any of this. And my take is I think that Powell is now a bargaining chip. 
the, 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 what we're learning about politics is it's harder to get your own party to agree on something than it is if you're partisan and you have to agree with the other side of the aisle. So you've got the moderates and the progressives arguing about spending packages, debt ceiling, budgets, and all that other stuff. How do they bring the progressives along? Because I think everybody's focused on the wrong place. They're focused on Joe Manchin and they're focused on Kirsten Sinema and, and the moderates and whether or not they'll agree. I think that these progressives are true believers and they really want big government and big, big spending. Well, how do you yeah. get them to rein in those expectations? You got to give them something real. Jay Paul, give them Lael Brainerd at the Fed, give them Amarova at uh, Office of Controller of Currencies and give them the ability to crack down on the banks like Occupy Wall Street only wishes they could have done 10 years ago, which might happen right now. So Leo Brainerd might not mean a big change for Fed policy because she kind of agrees with where Paul's going. But from banking regulation, it's going to be night and day from having Randy Quarles and Jay Powell, you know, heading up the Fed to maybe her and another progressive heading up the Fed. So I know the betting markets are saying there's about a 75 percent chance that Powell will be reappointed. If I was to tell you where I think it is, I think it's 5149. He gets reappointed. I think it's that close. If if bargaining chip to get these deals done, he will be sacrificed. Otherwise, maybe not. We'll have to see. Let's walk through that bargaining chip negotiation uh, because it's not quite clear to me because what the progressives really want, I mean, let's call them what they are, socialists, is they want their agenda. They, they believe it. And I'm, I don't think they're being duplicitous. They have to believe there's no consequence to printing money because that's been the view of almost everyone up until very recently. So why would they want to get rid of Jay Powell just because they think he's in his way if, unless they can get somebody who they know would be in their camp, like Kelton, who couldn't possibly get confirmed? So I don't quite understand how that, that gymnastics works. Well, let's, you're right. Let's talk about what the progressives really want. They want big government. They want big spending. They want spending on the lower half of the uh, economic sphere. So they don't want deals for billionaires or anything uh, along those lines. That's what they want. As the Biden administration keeps talking about, we're gonna cut back on these deals. Maybe the three and a half trillion dollars is now 2 trillion. The progressives are, no, I want a three and a half trillion dollar bill. Actually, I want a $5 trillion bill, but I'm settling on three and a half. Don't tell me it's two. So then you ask them, okay, well, what can I give you? Well, they believe, and in this case, I'm going to kind of agree with them. They believe that the one of the greatest sources of inequality is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. And, uh, and they think that if they can get their people in charge of the Federal Reserve, Alejo Brainerd, and or banking regulation and Amarov at OCC, they could go about fixing the inequality of the banking system. Now, quick word, what is the inequality of the banking system? I tweet this out all the time and I always get this pushback. I always say that, you know, look at how expensive it is to transfer money, send somebody money. And everybody says, what do you mean? I could send you $10 on Zelle in two seconds. It doesn't cost me anything. Yes, because you have a bank account. You have a minimum amount of money in your bank account and your bank will, will waive fees. And then you download the Zelle app and away you go or Venmo. Now, let's say you're an undocumented worker working in the United States for cash. Walk in, I've said this to you, walk into a bank you've never had a relationship and say, I've got $100 here and I would like to send it to my family in Mexico. That'll take you two weeks and 50 bucks to do that. As half the money is gone. That's what the progressives want to try and attack is they want to try and 
beat down the banking system to make that system uh, more fair. Now, I agree with them that system is unfair. Actually, I think the fix might be the cryptocurrency market and not just you know try and blast the banking system into submission to try and make them do free money transfers. Jim, Jim, something you said there has kind of brought back a conversation I had recently about this. And, and um, we were talking about the Federal Reserve Board versus the Supreme Court. And I, and I think what we're seeing now is it used to be every administration's desire to stuff the Supreme Court, right? But it almost feels like the Federal Reserve Board is more important to have on your side, if you like. And so when we, when we think about what you've been talking about there, how they're going to try and the progressives are going to try and put their people on the Federal Reserve Board – it makes all the sense in the world to me because at that point they can push agendas through that they would never have had a chance to. And I saw a chart yesterday which showed that support for a big government is at the highest it's been in 60 years and the desire for small government is at its lowest. So it feels like there's a there's a moment in time here where if you are in the MMT camp, let's say, just to put a nice little bow around it, you have a moment in time, or just the way Trump had a moment in time with the Supreme Court, where you can set something up that is going to really help your agenda in a meaningful way for the next five years. When, frankly, given the, the, the state of all the moving parts around it, it's the worst thing that could possibly take place at this point in time to have a hugely progressive left stuff fed. I mean, do you see it playing out that way? Or do you see it something differently? And how do you handicap the dangers of that? Yeah, there's a big difference between the Fed and the Supreme Court. And I've used this analogy too. the Supreme Court has nine justices that are all independent and you get five, four votes all the time. And the idea that, you know, talked about packing the court was I can't get the, you know, if, you, if I'm talking from the Biden perspective, I can't get the conservative justices to vote my way. So I'll just overwhelm them with more progressive and liberal justices. The Federal Reserve, it's the opposite. Everybody votes with the chairman. Everybody does what the chairman says. And who tells the chairman how to vote? The staff. The Federal Reserve staff pretty much gives them all the information they need and everything kind of flows from there. So if we had the Supreme Court clerks deciding on all of these policies and all the justices just followed along, there'd be a mutiny in this country. Well, that's exactly the way the Federal Reserve works. So all you need at the Federal Reserve is the chairman. That's one of the reasons why all these seats, I think, go unfilled they don't really serve any purpose because they're all going to go there and they're all going to do what Jay tells them to do or what Janet tells them to do or what Ben tells them to do or, or what Lael tells them to do if she's the next one, whoever the next one is. Yeah, that's why I said that all you need is the Federal Reserve chairman and you get pretty much what you want from there. There is no, you know, even in Japan, the ultimate consensus society, their monetary policy committee will have six, three, five, four votes. That's the case in the Bank of England. But the Fed is unique. The staff tells everybody how to vote. And occasionally they'll let, you know, some rogue uh, bank president vote against it. And they'll get an 11-1 or a 10-2 vote, assuming they've got all 12 voters going. Uh, but they'll never have a 7-5 vote or an 8-4 vote, except in rare circumstances. So, yeah, that's why I think the Federal Reserve chairman is it. And, you know, we don't even have to bother with all the rest of the seats. That's at least been the, the history of the Fed right now. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So um, the reason why the Biden administration hasn't come forward with their plan for who they want to nominate is they're kind of waiting to see how this whole tax and spend bill gets handled. And then as part of that at the end. But I mean, that would imply a certain level to think ahead. And 
They seem like they play checkers in the Biden administration or a lot of times any administration rather than chess. So uh, do you think they've actually tied the calculus of the Fed into the the whole, you know, debt ceiling spending negotiations and all that stuff? I don't think they initially did it. I think it just kind of came about that way. Okay. In, in other words, let me let me let me back this up. In 2009, when Barack Obama won the election before his inauguration on January 20th, when he was still president elect, he nominated Dan Trillo to the Fed. I mean, he was that quick on this stuff. He moved to fill Fed seats before he even was officially the president. Biden had that opportunity. There was an empty seat and there still is. They've got Janet Yellen as the Treasury secretary who's been whispering in their ear, fill these seats, do this, do that. And they've got Janet Yellen, who came out two months ago and said that Jay Powell should be renominated, and they still haven't made the decision. So I agree with you. I think they are playing checkers and they are kind of uh, a little disjointed and not really paying attention to this. And then all these spending bills and everything came together and they've got pushback. And then it kind of occurred to them that, oh, you know, Liz Warren has come out as, you know, a great progressive leader and said that she will fight Jay Powell's nomination with every fiber of her being to try and prevent him from getting it. He called him a dangerous man. Then it just occurred to him, oh, I found something that these guys think is important. And if, if, if need be, I might use it to get this deal done. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to go back to something that you, you made a point on, and then we finished another topic because I think you're the exact person to ask this. You mentioned that the tips break evens was, I think, close to three right now. On the five-year tenor, yes. Yeah. And it occurs to me, there's an unbelievable amount of belief that that market is getting it right. And I know that muscle memory of the last 20 or 30 years where inflation was never a problem has a large role in this because I remember vividly in the early 80s after Volcker had broken inflation and how freaked out they were in 84 when you know, they took the bonds back to 12-ish. Um, so I understand how that works. But it seems like there's this slavish devotion to the mechanics of you know, the tips break evens and an unwillingness to believe your own lying eyes, if, if you will. I would think that it, as the tips break even was ratcheting higher, people would be a little more freaked out than they are. That's part one. And part two is because the government, acts, the Fed actually buys tips, are they suppressing where it's really supposed to be? And shouldn't that be part of the equation? Yeah. So to your second part, the Fed, yes, I've argued straight up that the Fed has to some degree broken the bond market. And that is basically the tips market and the nominal 10-year, five-year treasury market as well too. The Fed owns over a quarter of the all, all the tips markets. Before the pandemic, it was less than 10%. So they went from like 9% to 25. They now own something like 31% of all treasury notes and bonds. That was down in the low teens before the crisis or the pandemic crisis um, started as well too. So there's a highly, highly distorting effect of what they're doing in that market. So I've I've kind of argued something that's a little contradictory when it comes to the tips break-even market. I don't think it's a good metric inflation will eventually be because it's been distorted by the Fed. And history shows that it's never been a good metric anyway. But what it is, is it can be a measure of the market's opinion. And But the only time I would use it in this environment is when it's at an extreme. 
All right, it's at an all-time high. It's like so the it's, DSI, it's like the DSI at 95 or something like that, right? Right, then, then, exactly. Then it matters, right? Right, right. Exactly right. You know, the, the daily sentiment index or consensus inc, if you know, don't have me don't let's not come let's not come um have a discussion about what's the difference between 38 and 53. That's all noise. Right. But when it hits 95 or it hits five, then you pay attention to it. Well, that's where the tips break evens are now. Most of the time they they're just noise running around with flows and some uh and some other stuff. But when they go to a new high, a new 20-year high, like they've done now. Yeah, now that there's something going on here, and that is a concern about inflation. This is kind of almost silly, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So you talked about a potential for a policy accident early on for the reasons we've like fleshed out since. <laughs> of course, a policy accident is ultimately a bond market's wet dream, right? So you get this perverse thing where, okay, the bond market's making a mistake. It's too gullible right now. The Fed's going to make a mistake, and then that's going to collapse everything. So we're not going to sell bonds. We're going to buy them to get ready for the mistake. Now, it's too soon to do that, but there's all this kind of game-playing, game simulation kind of stuff that goes on, and it seems that there's very little of, well, let me see. Inflation's running 5 to 10. Pick the number, where you live, what your station in life is. The bond market's willing to offer me 150 or two. Why don't I think about the chances of it ever getting to be a real number? I mean, where, where does the thought process start to show up again, or how does that manifest itself? If, I know I've kind of gone all over the place, but you can you can. You no, know, I I understand what you're saying, and you know, I guess I'll answer the question this way. There's a lot of people that say the Fed can't raise rates. We're so horribly indebted that if we were to see serious rates, three, four, five, six percent that it would just crush government finances with the interest costs. That's true. Yes. And then there's others that have argued that what could very well happen in a scenario where you get inflation and the Fed is forced to act is that they're raising short rates because that's what they've been programmed to do. And the stock market starts getting weak need. And by the way, I know, Bill, you've, 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 you've looked at this stuff too. A big myth is that oh the stock market's a good hedge for this for inflation? <laughs> it's never been a good hedge. It's a it's it's a good excuse at the beginning of an inflation, and yeah. then it never really works out that way. The seventies were a terrible well, time. Remember Steve Lufo wrote that book in the early eighties about the myth of the stock market and inflation, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And so it is not a good inflation hedge. So if you get inflation and the Fed is raising short rates. And risk assets like stocks are, are weakening or at least getting weak because they don't like the idea that inflation's coming. There's been a school of thought that says, yeah, watch what happens to long rates. Everybody will pile into them as a, as a safety trade. And then they could wind up going down, inverting the yield curve and creating all kinds of screwy distortions. And the answer is yes, because the Fed as owning nearly a third of the market and being such a heavy involver in the market could wind up causing screwy kind of stuff. A quick aside for you, the big one to watch is Japan. Japan has been doing quantitative, qualitative easing since 2016. They started quantitative easing in 2000. They've been doing it for over 20 years. The Bank of Japan owns more than half of the JGB market right now. And if you look at what's happened in the JGB market, volume, in the, and then they do yield curve control. They are yeah. targeting the 10-year at 0% and we'll do unlimited amounts of QE to keep it there. There's whole days that it doesn't the trade. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't trade. Yeah. There's no reason for it to trade. It is not a measure of market sentiment or market signaling in any way. 
And you could wind up seeing that happen if you continue to have heavy central bank involvement in these markets that you go, well, why is the 10, why is the 10 year and the 30 year collapsing in yield as inflation is running away and the Fed's raising rates? Because we've so broken these markets, they don't behave yeah. like you would think that they should. Uh, and look at Japan. I mean, everybody everybody quotes the ten year JGB, uh, and I always always quip, did it trade today, or, yeah. or was that some ma- yeah. or was that some matrix price that they made up just to give you a number to put in the newspaper? <laughs> well, um, I won't bore Grant with this for the 999th time, but that used to always be my favorite question when discussing this: Was Japan the canary in the coal mine? Might we see this end there? But but in asking the question over the last couple of years, I, I, I've come to conclude that they've already won. They don't have to do anything. You know, I used to say, what if they wake up and say, you know, we'll swap the, you know, this debt that we own back to the MOF and take a 200-year perp at one basis point. But it now seems like that's not necessary. They don't have to say, hey, look, we pulled you the wool over your eyes and it worked. They can just keep doing what they're doing and the balance sheet will stay as it is forever. So I, I, I'm not convinced that the other central banks won't try to do the exact same thing and they'll emulate them until such time yeah. as the market d- decides to you know, fight this for real as we've discussed it could down the road. Yeah, and, and then the problem is, is we'll get the same outcome as Japan because if you look at their economic growth, for the last 20 years, it's essentially been zero. Uh, you know, their nominal growth has been zero. They've been in and out, you know, by our definition, they're in and out of recession every 18 months or so. They're, they've got no real growth that's going on there. You know, culturally, I think the Japanese are okay with what they've been seeing with the sluggish economy that they've had for the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, I think that culturally in the West and especially in the United States, that would be untenable if we were to have some kind of a Japan outcome. Um, to this, this kind of sluggish growth or so. Jim, I mean, the other, the other thing obviously is that, that Japan doesn't have the demographics that we have, so they don't need to create all these new jobs every year. They don't need the economy to grow as fast necessarily. Yeah, do but, they have um, a southern border in Japan? I can't remember. No, <laughs> no but they do sell more adult diapers than baby diapers in <laughs> yeah, Japan yeah, right now yeah, because they're so yeah, old. They've, they've messed up yeah. their demographics pretty badly, but anyway. Um, right. Jim, demographics brings us on to, to deflation, and the three of us have – several mutual friends, all of whom have our great respect and all of whom are strong, staunch advocates that this deflationary scare is what we have to be worried about. This really is transfer. You know, Lacey Hunt and Rosie are the two that spring immediately to my mind. Um, and they both make a very eloquent case as to why you should stick with the status quo and this is just a scare. So when you think through what guys like that say, how do you see potential ways that they could be right? And, and deflation is a thing we have to worry about. Well, I'll take Rosie's argument, too, is that what he he would argue that there's a fiscal cliff out there. Yeah. In yeah. other words, we have just spent an enormous sum of money to basically shock the economy back into life after the pandemic lockdown. And it's resulting in the supply chain problems and everything else that we've talked about. That is going to come to an end. And when all of that fiscal stimulus rolls off in 22, his argument is the economy will turn south and inflation will turn south as well. I understand that argument, and he could very well be right, Uh, in which case the inflation story will dissipate. But I don't know if you could say, see, I told you there wasn't going to be any inflation because we're going to go right into recession. Right. Then at, at that and then point. you got to start up the QE machine again. And, you know, right. um, as an aside, you know, both Jim Grant and Mark Faber, both 
mutual friends of all of ours, have spent more time talking about the 60s, late 60s and early 70s. And in Mark's latest piece, he goes back into it in some detail. And and it's it's quite clear. I mean, even if, I'm not saying this is decided, but <clears throat> even if we're on a path of inflation for, say, let's say this is a replay of the 60s, 70s in some fashion, there's still going to be periods of time where, where inflation runs up, it pulls back, and even if it's going to go higher again. So there will be a bunch of times when the people that said, see, I told you you didn't have to worry about this. It was transitory. Yes, it went higher, lasted longer, but I see I'm right. That That's going to happen a whole bunch of times, I would expect. Yes? Yeah. You know, uh, first of all, I agree. I've been using uh, the 60s as an analogy, too. I think that everybody's wrong when they, st- you know, they always jump to the fun part of the, of the movie, <laughs> right, right? Let's right, go, right, let's right. go to, ni- right, yes. inflation is 1979. Well, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, but we have but to start think, back in the 60s. Right. We yeah. have to start, you know, and and uh, if you actually go back and you look at the Fed transcripts, there's Fed transcripts out to the 30s. Uh, and if you read under the Bill Martin Fed in the 60s and stuff, they were talking about exactly the same things we're talking about today. They even used the word transitory inflation 50 and 55 years ago to explain away the early signs of inflation in 65, 66, 67. That was the old Johnson guns and butter uh, argument, which was we could have both guns for Vietnam and butter, which is the 2021 version of that is the supply chain overdone uh, as well, too. And the stock market in 66 made a new high and then sold off. And in 68 made a new high and sold off. And it made a new high all the way to 73. And then it was done for about 15 or 16 years uh, at that point. These were marginal new highs. And every time it came back and inflation backed off, we all said that they were brilliant. Uh, then, you know, we had Nixon take us off the gold standard and inflation backed off in 72. He was brilliant. And then they had, you know, wage and price controls phase one, two, three, and inflation backed off. It was brilliant. And then you got the late 70s and it all came together in a very, very bad inflation. So, yeah, I think that this, the 60s is going to be like that, right? There will be some backing off of inflation. And then, aha, see, I told you it was transitory. And then it goes back up. Oh, maybe it's not. And the stock market makes a new high, sells off, goes up, goes down before it becomes a settled situation. It took 10 or 15 years to settle it once we started in with the inflation talk in the mid 60s. Yeah. Speaking of uh, wage and price controls, it seems to me, given sort of the hands-on nature of the Biden administration in terms of just about anything they have an opinion on. Don't the, use handsy with Joe Biden no. now. Remember that. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> um, it seems to me that we're, we're quite likely to see a, a whole slew of price controls of, I mean, after he gets done calling up OPEC and asking him to print more oil. <laughs> they're liable to say, well, we're just going to, we're not going to let you raise the price of it. It seems to me like that is just around the corner on a bunch of subjects. If that happens, are the markets going to collectively yawn uh, or they will they will they sort of say, no, this, this never leads to anything good? I think you got to, you got to answer which question. So let me, let me take a, a little right turn in answering okay. your question. What, what market are we talking about and why is it moving along? So let's take- okay. Uh, the bond market. Why is it that, um, you know, people have asked me this question all the time about the bond market, and I think I've answered it already. Why are yields going straight up? I mean, can't anybody see the inflation or the problems or how how bad a deal it is with bonds? Trillion and a half dollar buyers out there, and that's they're printing money and buying it. That's why bond yields 
don't go up. Well, what about the stock market? Uh, the, the thing about the stock market is uh, if you look at mutual fund and ETF flows since March, they have set every record that you could come up with, whether it's a weekly record, a monthly record, a cumulative record, huge amounts of money has been going into the stock market since March. Where did that money come from? It came from the government. We sent $100 million plus $1,400 stimulus checks. And all that money, everybody said, what am I going to do with all that money that they just put into my account? I'm going to buy stocks. And in 2021, there's only one stock. And that's the that's spiders. That's the S&P 500 index fund. And that's what and I, I put out a piece today as we were talking about and pointed out that since March, since those stimulus checks came out, that the S&P is up 15 percent. The Russell is down two. that is a 17, 17 percent or 1700 basis point gap between the performance of the two. Such a gap between the Russell and the S&P. First of all, we haven't seen a gap that big in over 20 years. And every time we've ever seen a gap that big, the Russell was down at least 25%. In other words, it was a bear market. It was right. a bad bear market. And everybody hid in all yeah. the safe high cap stocks and sold all the stocks. But now that gap is opening up in a rally. And we've never seen that before. Why? Because the government mails us money. And then what do we do with our money? We put it in savings. And what is savings? It's a Robinhood account buying spiders because that's what everybody's been trained to do right now is to buy an index fund. So as long as that money train continues, I think the stock market goes. So to go back to what Rosie was saying, if we have a fiscal cliff, if all of a sudden we have a much reduced spending package and a must reduce budget, and there isn't as much mailed money in 2022 as there was in 21 or in 20, all of a sudden, the flow that's been driving the market and really driving 500 stocks. Right. And that's not, 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 not even really, because hey, I was just going to say, it's more you, like about 20. When you, take, when, you take the, when you take the spiders and then the passive bid from the indexing that comes from corporate America, which is now half the market, uh, that it's, there's, let's be generous. Let's say it's 10, Grant. Not for right. I mean, no, I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. I saw. I, I saw data that I, Google, I, I, Apple, Facebook, and Netflix is twenty is fifty percent of the rise this year. Yeah, no, I right, can. Right. I, Those four. I, I, I was just. I was just being generous, so nobody can laugh at us and say, "Oh, it's not just four. All right, hey, they're already right. laughing at the spill. Okay. And that's and that's. And true and that's but but then that's, it's it's. So I was just going to say the reminiscence of the psychology of both the Nifty Fifty of the late Nifty 60s 50, yeah. and the gunslingers. Uh, that were buying, you know, any in the whole. Um, if Onyx was in the name, or 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 or, uh, or or Silicon was in the name, so we have all the same kind of crazy stuff that happened in the late '60s, at the same time going on here. And furthermore, we have the dislocation capability of what happened in the late '80s in Tokyo, where it didn't matter how big the company was; it could be up 25 percent in a day. So we've got every speculative excess that I've ever read about or encountered um, all happening at the same time. Um, that doesn't mean it won't stop, it, that it'll stop because of um, both now what you said, but the part that no one can know and is immeasurable and no one has any data because we've never been at this exact kind of point before of the things that are stimulating it is how much market cap is too much. So part of me thinks we've kind of almost reached that 
And that's why it's just this small group of stocks holding it together. Whereas if you take the average business, they, they don't, nothing really gets any traction anymore on an individual stock level, only the big stuff, which is uh, kited higher by the, by, you know, the things that both of you have just said. So right. I, you know, um, and I'll just, I'll, I'll underscore exactly what you said. Since March, the Russell 2000, the Americana companies down 2%. They haven't done anything since March. S&P up 15. And I agree with you. It's a handful of, of, of FANG stocks and a couple of other, you know, Tesla and a few others that are, that are really powering the whole market higher. What's different now is you never had during the nifty 50 craze or even in Japan, you never had the government mailing people right. money. No, no. And then yeah. Their, yeah. And their reaction was, you got to put it in the stock market. Right. That no. was their reaction. No. If you actually sent them money, you know, we've had welfare checks forever. It never occurred to anybody that I need to, you know, put it in the market. And then you've got fractional share ownership and zero commissions. So even if it's 200 bucks, like I'll still put it in, right. uh, in the spiders. Well, because as I well, can buy too. some out of the money uh, Tesla calls and re- get rich. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Then right. you've got the whole YOLO trade right. is what right. we're talking about then at, at, at that point, too. Well, You're right. But let me just point, bring up one other thing about Japan in the late 80s and the Nifty 50. I mean, what are some of the Nifty 50 names? What were they? They were Xerox. Polaroid. They were IBM. Yeah, Kodak. Polaroid. Yeah. Kodak. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, was Winnebago in stuff, there, too? I don't know. Yeah, Winnebago Xerox, was in there, too. ITT. Some of the, a bunch of those names. The reason Woolworths. I brought up all those. Yep. <laughs> the reason. Woolworths. Yep. Go look at what happened to those stocks when that game was over. They oh, were yeah. pretty much done for at least at, a generation. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. I could see that with the Fang stocks and Tesla. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. What could very well happen is, is that those Fang stocks could go from a trillion dollar market cap to $600 billion. Well, that's still $600 billion in 25 years, you know, and stuff. And that's what you could wind up having happen with a lot of those uh, companies as well, too. But right now, as long as we keep mailing money and as long as we keep thinking that we have to be invested in the market and the market is not pick a good company, it's buy an index fund. Right. You know, the game continues until either the money dries up from the government or maybe rates go so high that it provides an alternative for some people. Well, mm-hmm. look at what I can get in a, I can actually get a, a yield in a CD or I can get a yield out of a bond fund and I don't have the risk. We don't have that now, but maybe if we ever got to that point, that could provide some competition towards this just constant flow. As I said, as long as there's electricity on Wall Street, money is flowing in to the index funds and it just continues to push the market higher. Well, speaking of electricity, <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> okay. Um, we've been accused of turning a blind eye towards crypto. And even though Josh Wolf is an adherent, we talked to him, we didn't really touch on it. And as I said to Grant, I think you're the, I'm going to piss off all the coiners now, but I think you're one of the most sane advocates of crypto that I've read. And so I'd like to hear your Cliff Notes bull case on I know that Bitcoin solves everything, but I would like to know specifically what you think, from a level-headed standpoint, crypto is going to solve. Uh, so, and it's gotten you as enamored of it as you are, because I know you're a thoughtful guy. You know how all this stuff works. And uh, so there's the, there's, this, there's the soft curveball for you, Jim. So let me start with what I have not done, and then I'll tell you about what I have done. I have not pumped any coins. 
I have not pushed the idea that you've got to get involved in the space. What I have argued to people, because most of my customers, all my customers are traditional financial types as well, is I said, it is worth your time to invest your time to understand this space because I think it's going to be a big deal. Now, there's two things going on at once. There's the Ho-Chunk Casino and it's all out of control. And there's a lot of insane speculation. And most of these coins will probably go to zero. But underneath that, there is a real technology and a change. So let me come back to what I was saying before. I think that one of the problems that we have in society is inequality. One of the drivers of inequality is the financial system and that it is in inherently unfair for the lower end of the income spectrum. As I mentioned before, I gave you the $100 example where it's 50 Mm -hmm. bucks, but a more realistic example of that is if you're working at a near minimum wage job and you're an immigrant and you want to send your money back to your family, it'll cost you on average about a year, about 10 or 15% of your income. That means you work one month a year just to pay the bank to send your money to. That's outrageous. That should never be. And the problem is, the current system is such a patchwork of agents and correspondents and banks that just continue to hand money back and forth to each other to affect these transactions that it's never going to be able to get fixed within the, the current system. Now you bring in the cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and what you're looking at is a whole new financial system being built that's getting drowned out by all the insane speculation. Banking without banks, brokering without exchanges, insurance without insurance companies, all done by computer algorithm, smart contracts as well, too. It is not ready for prime time. A lot of people are not comfortable with the idea of you know, holding their own personal keys. That means if you lose the password to your electronic wallet, your money is gone. Uh, it just There's nobody to call. There's no customer service. You're not getting it back. So be very careful. You don't want to be like the guy from Polkadot. He's got something like $800 million in a wallet. And he forgot his password he's, and he's, he's had eight he's tries. He's down, down to one try, yeah. Yeah, he's down to one yeah. try right now. It actually shows you how good the, the yes. it shows you how good the crypto uh, is. The that's, encryption that's, that's is. Encryption, yeah. That's what I mean. Encryption. Right. So so yes, my mother that would be that would scare my mother beyond belief if if I told her yes, don't forget your password, mom, or all your money. Yeah, and gone. it's about twenty eight uh, digits. <laughs> right. Exactly. But you could if you if you invest the time to learn. Yes. You can see where we're going right, with this, right. and you could see the enormous disruption that it will create for the financial community. Two other quick points about this. People say, well, I believe in blockchain, but I'm not so sure about cryptocurrencies. And I've argued, yeah, that's like saying I, I'm in, bullish on the internal combustion engine, but I'm not bullish on automobiles. Uh, cryptocurrencies is the killer app for the blockchain. Ultimately, I am a big believer in what's called Web3. And what Web3 means is that eventually the entire internet is going to be on the blockchain. And what that means in English, I'm not going to go through all this technical stuff because I barely understand it myself too, is I'll give it to you straight up what everybody wants to hear. You will no longer in the future need a password. You will register your device. I'm holding up my phone here because we're on a podcast. And you will register it on the blockchain as me, as Jim Bianco, my laptop, my computer. When I go to my bank, I bank at Citibank. I go in with my phone. It says, oh, that's Jim Bianco because it's coming from that device. Oh, he has an account with us. Let him see his money. No more passwords. Right. You know, and that's, that's the way you will sign up once 
and then it will know it's you. You'll have one password for your device. For your device. And then that, yeah. that's it, that's it, that's it. What does that mean other than the convenience of not having passwords? I now have ownership over everything that I do in the cyber world. I have ownership over my data. I have ownership over my content. I have ownership over everything. So one of the great things about the Twitters of the world and the YouTubes of the world is what a great business model. You know, you all of us are on Twitter. We spend all day long creating value for Twitter. That's what we basically do. We go out on Twitter and we tweet and we tweet, we get followers and we create attention for Twitter. And then a little bit of that flows back to us. In the future, there won't be a Twitter. There will be a, a utility, a protocol, as they call it, that will run a social media platform. I will own all of my data. I will own all of my communications. If I elect to uh, attach advertising to it or some other form of monetizing it, I decide what it is. I get 100% of the revenue from it. And I decide how much or how little I get to do of it. And no one will censor me along the way. That's ultimately where I think we're going to go. And ultimately to align those interests, that's where cryptocurrencies come into play and that they will have a role. But yes, I'm trying to separate that right. from the insane speculation that we have now. Two things yeah. can be true at once. You've got out of control speculation and a lot of that can end in tears. And DeFi, but is underneath the, and DeFi it, can still be the future. Yes, DeFi can still be the future right. and still be very realistic. So just because these coins go up or down or somebody got, you know, the phrase they use is rug pulled, that there was some kind of a hack and they stole their money. Yeah, that's what happens early on in a technology. But if you invest the time, you'll see, no, there's something real here. And maybe in 10, 15, 20 years, the financial system will look a lot different than it looks today. Well, I... I, I actually, and I think Grant as well, we haven't talked about it, but I, I, I agree with you that, that that is the evolution of things. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the hot potato now. When the people that are advocates of Bitcoin in particular, it seems to me that they're the most, um, the most sort of rabid for their cause. They act like the only way you can get at this thing that you suggest will be the future is to own Bitcoin rather than it seems to me that Bitcoin may or may not, probably will be, but may or may not be a currency used in, in the DeFi. If you own Bitcoin, you don't capitalize on DeFi. If you want to own DeFi, you got to have a business that's in DeFi. Do you not? Or am I, am I asked backwards? No, no, you got it right. The, the phrase that they use is these are the maxis. The Bitcoin maxis is what they are. Uh, Jack Dorsey's a maximalist. Michael Saylor's a maximalist. Anthony Papanello is a, is a maximalist, that they believe that Bitcoin is the perfect tool and that that is it. That's all you need. Look, Bitcoin is an important tool, like gold is an important tool in the, in the current financial system. It is a store of value, but it is not ready to do all of the things that everybody wants, a medium of exchange, high throughput so that you can buy a cup of coffee with it. That will probably be on something like the Solana blockchain or maybe in the Ethereum blockchain or, or some or Cardano Scott is working on that. There is really there is the ability to have smart contracts on Bitcoin uh, and they've got an upgrade coming called Taproot that should help further that along. But all that stuff's on the Ethereum blockchain. In other words, Bitcoin will be an important voice in a larger chorus. It won't be the solo and the solo act and nobody else. That's where I think the difference is. And that's why I personally get frustrated when I argue with maxis as well, too, is that 
you know, I believe what you're saying about Bitcoin, but why does it have to end there? It, there has to be so much more than that. You know, it's almost like, you know, we, what we've learned in modern finance is, look, you just don't need one company or you just don't need two companies or you just don't need one type of security class. You can have preferred stocks and you can have common stocks and you can have multi-class voting shares and stuff for different circumstances. You just don't need one and then say we've, we've created the perfect security and we don't need any of these others. Bitcoin will be there. It will always be there. It will always be important. But this other stuff will matter as well, too. Jim, what role do central bank digital currencies play in this? How do they fit into this picture? I don't think they do. And I've been on the argument that of a central bank digital currency, either A, I don't think we're going to get one eventually, right. or if we do, if we do, it will be stuck with so many restrictions and limitations that it will never get any kind of serious adoption. Now, why do I say that? Because let's talk about what a pure central bank digital currency should be, a pure one. The Fed creates FedCoin. You and I, we download an electronic wallet and we connect with the Federal Reserve and we hold our money with the Fed. They're now in direct competition with the, with the commercial mm -hmm. banking system for deposits. And given the, the way that people worry about safety and every inconvenience, that could be a severe disruption for the banking system. Well, the Fed can't do that. Okay, well, the Fed, and furthermore, if the Fed did that, then those coins could find their way into the crypto space. And then instead of trading stable coins, we'd actually trade Fed coins in the stable space. And that could add an air of legitimacy to the, to the crypto space that could really see prices ramp up if, if, if the craziness hasn't been enough already. So then the Fed says, well, we can't do that. We got we to gotta protect the banking system. Maybe we'll make some kind of a wholesale uh, central bank digital currency that the Fed will trade with JP Morgan or the Fed will trade with Bank of America or something. So what? It doesn't change anything for you or me if they wind up doing that. So the problem with a central bank digital currency is they want to find a way to add this central bank digital currency, but not disrupt anything that they already have. And the purpose of a central bank digital currency is disruption. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, China is testing a digital one right now. They've been right. test marketing it. That was going to be my next question, actually. So Yeah. The, the word is it's not going very well because what's happened is people in China have said, okay, here's this digital one. I like Alipay better. I like WeChat Pay better. I could do a lot more with it. It's a lot more interesting. This is very limiting. So in what does a what does the communist Chinese say when they say WeChat Pay and Alipay are better? Oh, we'll just regulate them so that they're so shitty right. that our right. coin looks better instead right. of fixing your coin. So they're even finding the same problem as well too. Is that um, you know if you want to go whole in and become a pure CBDC, you essentially end your banking system or you risk ending your banking system. Well, you don't want to do that. Okay, now you've got a bunch of trade offs. And you're going to wind up, you know, with something kind of half-assed that no one's really interested in. That's why I said either they don't do it, put so many restrictions on it that it never really becomes some serious type of uh, adoption. But it, but so you don't think that even the process of implementing CBDCs is any kind of threat to alternative competing cryptocurrencies? No, um, I'll go into the weeds here a little bit to answer this question. I know there's a lot of the term they use in the space is FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about stable coins, you know, and, and, and the trust that back them up 
are dubious in nature, the tether trust and stuff. And that's all true. But I think it overstates the problem. First of all, what is the purpose of a stable coin? When you're in the crypto universe, there is no fiat right. money in the right. crypto universe. You need a trading, a casino chip. It's a money, you need it's a a money market fund for crypto, basically, right? Right. But, but you need that casino chip needs to have two properties. It needs to be instantly setting, settled. Right. And it needs to be irreversible. Right. Okay. So that when I trade my tether for Ethereum or, I, you know, or something like that, it's an instant trade. And the minute that trade is done, the second that trade is done, you can't undo it. The problem with fiat money is it takes two days to settle. You have 60 days to claim fraud and you have up to two years to reverse the trade. Right, That's right. never going to work in that space. We can't be undoing trades from two years ago because somebody said that their money was stolen. This space is instant and it's irreversible. That's why stable coins were created. Otherwise, if you didn't have a stable coin, instead of trading Tether against Ethereum or Uniswap, you would be trading Ethereum against Uniswap or Ethereum against another currency. And that would be highly, highly volatile. So I like to say, um, you know, when I hear regulators uh, say, well, stable coins aren't stable. Yes, they are relative to if you used Ethereum or you used one of the other tokens. The Bitcoins is a little different. It's a different blockchain. But if you used one of the trade, those things would bounce around 10, 20, 50% in a day. These stable coins might juggle around one, two to 10% a day, but in the space, in the cryptocurrency space, that's no volatility at all. So if you want to get rid of the stable coins, give me something that has a stable value that settles instantly, that is irreversible. A Fed coin will never be that. A Fed coin will never, ever be that. And for nothing else, they will never agree to irreversibility because they're always going to have to have these provisos for fraud or mistakes to undo these trades like we do in the banking system. That's why you and I, you know, whenever somebody steals your identity with your credit card, uh, you know, you just call up the bank and say, oh, that wasn't me. And they go, OK, OK, we'll reverse all these trades and all those errand charges will go away. That's not how the cryptocurrency world works. You have to be very careful with your passwords and with your money, because if there's a mistake made, you eat it and there's no one to call to reverse it. Not even Ghostbusters can help you out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Well, Jim, it's been a fascinating hour and change. I've just seen a headline come over the line. Funny, I've talked about what we were talking about earlier, but from Senator Tim Scott, who's saying, without big change, he can't back Powell's renomination. So maybe we're starting to see... Ooh. The first moves. That's interesting. Now, yeah. that's, go ahead, Jim. You, you go yeah. ahead. He, he's a Republican. Yeah, correct. He's South a Carolina. He's yeah. a Republican. And, yeah, yeah, and that is, mm. and that is going to be that's significant. So I mean, tell, before what, what it was the sorry, Jim. I, before you answer it, can you? Because I mean, I, from what I've read, that he says he's a pretty thoughtful guy, uh, and I don't know everything he thinks. What would be the calculus on that? Do you think it's just to maybe he's more in the equality camp uh, that the progressives are in, or you know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have expected him to say something like that about Paul, and I'd have to see, you know. But he's he leans a lot more conservative uh, than uh, uh, you know than than the typical Republicans. So maybe he's worried about. Uh, if I had to guess, I think he's probably in that camp that's worried about too much money printing and too much of the government having their okay. thumb or the Fed having their thumb on everything. So this is like you get the curious bedfellows of the people on the left and the people kind of on the right and uh, together. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Because there are there are there is a contingent of 
of conservative Republicans that hate quantitative easing. Yes. They yeah. think it is yes. a debasement of the currency and they would rather that it would be done away with. So if I had to guess, that would probably be why he'd come okay. out against him. All right. Well, as I say, it's just a headline right now, but definitely something to watch. Well, Jim, again, look, thanks so much for taking this time. It's been, uh, it's Bill and I've been looking forward to this for some time now, and it's been, it's been every bit as much fun as we thought it would. So, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, you know, if there thank are, you. if there are people out there, I'd be amazed if there are who aren't following you. What's the best way for them to follow you and, and keep up with your thinking on this stuff? Because it's going to be important. I think uh, probably uh, at Bianco Research on Twitter, and you can follow me, Jim Bianco, on LinkedIn. Um, you can also check out our website uh, if you wanted to see a free trial of some of the stuff that we have behind the paywall. Fantastic. BiancoResearch.com. Fantastic. Jim, a pleasure as always. And uh, and we'll talk to you soon again, I hope. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, man, that was fun. That was so much fun. We covered a lot of ground. We we got, you know, uh, and I'm, I, I thought the discussion on um, DeFi was uh, short but packful information. No one can say we hate the DeFi world. What? Hey, no, no, nobody should say that. They might, and they probably will. Some of them, Bill. I mean, don't don't forget. Oh yeah. Don't forget there were there were a couple of pops taken at Maxi's there, so we've got that yeah. to contend with, right? You can't. You and I like kind of love one, love all, right? That's but that that, that doesn't Fair seem enough. to work Fair enough. in the real world. Anyway, well, listen. All that remains, I guess, to thank our guest Jim Bianco. What a fantastic job he did. To thank you for listening, and to remind you that uh, you can find Jim on Twitter. You'll find him at Bianco Research. Uh, you can check out his website, BiancoResearch.com. And uh, if you look for Jim Bianco on LinkedIn, it sounds like you'll find him there. I wouldn't know because I'm hopeless at LinkedIn. So you'll have to take Jim's word for that, not mine. You can follow me on Twitter if you're not doing so already. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm still at FleckCap. Still at FleckCap. Mate, until the next one. This was fun. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.